evening, everybody. It is Carrie from the Whistle Stop Cafe and uh, the Chris Carrie Show, and welcome to the Alberta Prosperity Projects webinar, Wednesday webinar series. And today is uh, Wednesday, December fourteenth, and we have the ever lovely Michelle Sterling, who has actually been on a few times already. Hello, Michelle. How are you? Hello. Good evening. I'm doing well. Thanks Excellent. for joining us, everyone. Yes, absolutely. You've uh, you've actually been on uh, twice already that I'm aware of, and you did one uh, a webinar on unmarked or mass graves, mm -hmm. which uh, Chris and I had uh, hosted and found that to be fascinating. And uh, and I believe the first one was with Chris, and it was the My Tar Sands uh, tipping point with the CBC. So now today we're doing, uh, the webinar and we're calling it cruel and unusual punishment, which yes. I think is a, an amazing title considering it almost sounds like uh, crime and punishment or some, uh, some historic book. And we're going to get right into exactly what we're going to be doing with that. But, um, please stick around. Uh, we're going to be doing this for at least an hour and, uh, we'd like for everybody to get out there and share this. Um, a little preamble about what the Alberta Prosperity Project is. It's an inspiring initiative to educate and unite all Albertans, businesses and organizations to protect their prosperity, individual freedoms, rights and self-determination by enabling Alberta to chart a new path forward. And the path to prosperity and freedom is through independence with or without Canada. And of course, why are we doing these series of, uh, of webinars? Well, the idea is that uh, we have to try and educate uh, people so that they realize uh, how to go forward and become prosperous on their own. And um, and what a better way to do these than to share some information, especially with guests like Michelle, and uh, and and to talk about a, a lot of stuff. And of course, this topic is really a hot topic, hot topic about climate change. And uh, and all the associations. So if you want to know anything about uh, uh, the Paris. Uh, a Paris Agreement, uh, the Kyoto Accord, I guess is pre-ramble what it was before. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about that. We're also going to be talking about the amount of money that is uh, is being basically being switched hands over this whole climate change agenda. And uh, we're actually talking about uh, how Alberta can lead the way in Canada and uh, and and maybe maybe get past this or at least have some options so so with that i'm going to say uh hello again michelle and uh you know what actually i'm gonna i'm gonna read you have such a great bio uh, <laughs> you are you're you're absolutely amazing so, such a knowledgeable person i mean i just i just do jukeboxes and i, I occasionally flip burgers no I, I i do social media and stuff but that's that's pretty much it but let me tell you about a little bit about uh the ever amazing michelle sterling she is the communications manager for Friends of Science Society. She has worked in marketing, communications, advertising, and film video production most of her career. And in 2005, she worked for a time at Alberta Environment as an, inform in, as an information coordinator. And that's the same year that the Sierra Club gave Alberta an F and, an, and Ontario a B plus. And that jump started her interest in uh, climate change policies. It also led to her substantially encouraging Friends of Science to challenge the claims of the phase out coal campaign in Alberta. Michelle was an op-ed writer for the Red Deer Advocate for several years and has contributed articles to the Calgary Herald, Edmonton Journal, Troy Media and Medium, and several of her papers on uh, consensus thinking posted on the Social Science Research Network, 
uh, are, are in the top 10% of downloads. It actually says here too, you're a member of the CAJ and AAAS. Can, what, what, is, what is CAJ and AAAS? The CAJ is the Canadian Association of Journalists. Okay. And the AAAS is the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences. That's amazing. Absolutely. So we're yeah we're we're talking today about cruel and unusual punishment. So why is why is that the title? Because I found that to be so fascinating. And of course, I had some pre notes to go through all this, but uh, I want to I want to hear your take on on why it's actually called that. Well, basically, that's what climate policy is imposing on Canadians: mm -hmm, mm -hmm. cruel and unusual punishment. Absolutely. And uh, cruel and unusual punishment is a charter is under the charter, uh, we have the right to not be uh, treated in a cruel way. That's right. So it's section 12 of the charter actually. And so we thought we would, you know, do a bit of a twist on mm -hmm. how all the environmental groups are always taking little kids to court and saying, section seven, life, liberty, you know, yeah. you yeah. guys are doing enough on climate change. We thought we'd do the reverse and say, you're doing too much on climate change and you're yeah slaying us with cruel and unusual punishment yeah yeah it's almost yeah. medieval in nature and you'll see that in some of the slides oh for sure the uh and and of course we've done uh, a few series uh on uh on kind of climate change or at least um talking about it so we did a a, a video with uh, alex epstein and then he came to calgary and talked about that and we also last week we did we had Robert Lyman, who is actually in your your notes many times mm -hmm. uh, as a citing uh, conversation. So if you haven't for our viewers, if you haven't seen any of those, please feel free. Don't keep watching this video, though. Keep watching this video. But <laughs> after this, go back and take a look at uh, some of the APP videos that we've done before and uh, and really educate yourself. And again, share, share, share. That's the only way that we're going to get through this is by educating people out there. So with that, why don't why don't we just jump right into your presentation and uh, and then we'll see what's going on. Okay, I think I have the sharing up already. So um, yeah, there it is. Okay. So we're starting off with this kind of bizarre image mm -hmm. uh, that looks rather medieval in nature because we feel that we're being pushed into a form of carbon serfdom or neo-feudalism mm -hmm. yeah. and uh, this is representative of the uh, kind of witch trials um, so this report that I'm going to walk you through rebuts the government report from two years ago which was called a healthy environment and a healthy economy mm -hmm. um, and we don't think it does either of those things so uh, let's, but first I have a couple of other items that I'll discuss before we get into that report. And the first item is, hmm, I can't seem to move this. Uh, why is that? Change the slide. What do you need to do? Yeah. There Down there. Here we go. Okay. So the first important thing that we need to know about is, um, with respect to the Sovereignty Act, what good timing, because right now Bill C-235 is going through, well, it's actually gone through third reading in the House, and now it's going to the Senate. Mm -hmm. And this is a notion from Central Canada to impose on Western provinces a green prairie economy. 
So um, the only great thing is that the bloc actually voted against it, but nonetheless, it still passed in the House. So just imagine if if the Western provinces decided to impose some kind of economy on Quebec or Ontario, I mean, everyone would be up in arms. So whatever policymakers you can get a hold of to talk about this, um, you should do it as soon as possible. Do you want to just briefly say what the green prairie economy is? Well, the idea is to impose upon us uh, a net zero, in fact, a zero emissions economy, which would mean like phasing out um, all of our fossil fuels, which is a major uh, income earner and job maker for all of us. And of course, we can't live without fossil fuels. We certainly can't uh, stay warm without fossil fuels right now. You can't live without them either. I mean, actually, we just did a video about um, a report from The Economist. And they're forecasting between 80,000 to 185,000 people will die this winter in Europe because of the energy crisis there. Because fossil fuels are sky high and they're rationing them because they don't have enough. Um, So, you know, things are bad and they're going to get worse. Mm -hmm. We can't live without fossil fuels. So they're trying to impose upon us things that have been otherwise mandated, some in the healthy economy or healthy environment, healthy economy report, mm-hmm. some through Bill C-12. But you'll see uh, as we go through um, that this is just like one more nail in the coffin. Okay. 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 So uh, let's see. So I just want to do a quick overview here. The main presentation will address the lack of cost-benefit analysis or the technical challenges. I'm not going to read every word on these pages. Um, And in the interim, Bill C-12 has been introduced. I don't know if people are aware of it. I don't think many people are. Mm. But Robert Lyman did a report at the time, and he outlined the implications. So I'll show those to you. And... um, In the second part, I will deconstruct the federal plan by walking you through our rebuttal report, A Cruel and Unusual Punishment. But first, do we only have 10 years left? No. So um, this whole idea that, you know, the world is going to end in 10 or 12 years or now it's down to eight or maybe six. It depends who's talking. Um, That's just not true. That the report never said that, and here is uh, the co-chair of the report saying that, but it only got this little blip of media coverage and then vanished. So we're fine. And is the 2 degrees Celsius or 1.5 degrees Celsius target scientifically accurate? Well, no. Um, this was arbitrarily set 40 years ago by William Nordhaus, and it was just kind of an back-of-the-envelope guess, but it yeah. stuck. It's funny how a lot of that happens, even six feet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sticks. Yeah. yeah. Um, and is there a climate emergency? No. And you can go to the Clintel website and read the World Climate Declaration and see why. Wow. But there's more than 1,400 uh, scholars and scientists who've signed the declaration. Um And what's wrong with pushing for rapid change? Because that's what we keep hearing about. We have to go, hurry, hurry, it's an emergency. Well, uh, if you look at Hans Rosling's book, Factfulness, he explains that fear plus urgency leads to stupid, drastic decisions with unpredictable side effects. And as I mentioned earlier about Europe, that's what's happening there. So in summary, we do have time. 
There's no 10-year deadline. The 2 degree or 1.5 degree Celsius target was set arbitrarily. There's no climate emergency and fear plus urgency leads to stupid, drastic decisions with unpredictable side effects. Yeah. So now in part one, I'm just going to go briefly through Bill C-12. We have this report that Robert wrote, and this was before it passed the House, but uh, a lot of the things I'll tell you come from this report. So it's legislating the impossible dream, but what does it mean for you? Well, it means shutting down most of Canada's oil and gas industries. And uh, people may not know, but Canada is the fourth largest producer and third largest exporter of oil in the world. 97% of Canada's proven oil reserves are located in the oil sands. 98% of Canada's oil exports go to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And greenhouse gas emissions per barrel produced in the oil sands have fallen 36% since 2000. So Bill C-12 will end up shutting down most of the emissions-intensive industries, doubling or tripling the costs of products like gas, diesel, natural gas, propane, banning the use of natural gas. It will force people to use electric cars, whether that's feasible or not. It will double or triple the cost of electricity. It will replace, it will require replacement of electrical distribution systems in every community and house in Canada at the cost of hundreds of billions of dollars. It will double or triple airfare, and it will add $100,000 to the cost of a new house. And there will be more losses, losing investments and jobs because Mexico and China don't impose similar policies. Unprecedented government regulatory control will be imposed. COVID-19-like restrictions for the indefinite future may be imposed. And we'll lose hundreds of billions of dollars if we abandon existing infrastructure. And the secondary impacts, especially for Alberta, significant reduction in our population, depopulation in any resource industry northern community, a large deterioration in our trade balance, devaluation of our currency, maybe 60 cent dollars, and an increase in inflation, and a reduction in our incomes and standards of living. So it passed. I was just going to say, how is that even possible that that would have passed in the House and gone to the Senate if there was that much destruction happening in the economy? Well, a lot of times these papers, and here are the policy briefs, you can see that preceded this um, by the usual suspects, you know, Equiterre, Environmental Defense, Pembina, David Suzuki Foundation, who else is in there, CANRAC. Um, You know, they're very powerful lobby groups like CANRAC, for instance. It sounds like one uh, ENGO, but it's actually over 100 ENGOs under that umbrella and unions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these are very powerful and influential groups, and many of them have former workers now in government um you know people like marlo reynolds i'm not sure what his position is now but he used to be chief of staff for catherine mckenna yeah he used to run pemina institute so you know if you move from that position to government it's like old home night when people come with their little report saying let's do this yeah and then there's marking the way which was written by the canadian uh, institute for climate choices which is a taxpayer funded 
uh, supposedly independent nonpartisan organization. It was funded by the Canadian government for $21 million to start up. It's now an alleged charity, uh, but it uh, still gets money from government. And um, so it's basically kind of a mouthpiece for the government where they say what the government would like to hear. So they can go, oh, look, these independent re report tells us we should do this, you know. Anyway, we wrote um, this report, Dark Clouds of Conflict of Interest at the time. And um, again, I, I think a lot of times these uh, laws or, uh, you know, like if you read the 235 that I started with, mm -hmm. yeah. on the surface, it doesn't sound bad. You know, why wouldn't we want to have like a green economy in Western Canada, you know? Because it doesn't say we're going to shut down oil and gas. Yeah. As we want a green economy. But when you know the implications of what's being said, as Robert Lyman does, mm -hmm. you know, then you can extrapolate it. Yeah. And it was very quiet. You know, there's hardly any media coverage on it at all. I think we're the only group that did a report on it. Um, and I just happened to be at Freedom Talk and did a presentation on it because they had a cancellation. But other than that, there was really no publicity about it. So it just kind of smoothly, yeah. you know, went through. And that, that definitely seems to be like if the media is not covering any of this, we need to have independent media blowing the horn on this. And right. you know, the, the amount of stuff that, uh, that, that we've seen certainly in the last two years have really opened our eyes as to, you know, what's been happening for the last 20 years. And, and from what it sounds like, and it's not a derogatory term, but Canadians seem to be in, ignorant and complacent in a lot of stuff that they do. You know, as long as I can still go to get my Timmy's every morning, I really don't care to talk politics. I don't care to talk religion. And I certainly don't care what a C12 bill happens to be because that doesn't impact my coffee immediately. And yeah, well, I think that's what that's what these webinars are, are meant to fill, at least from my point of view, is uh, get this word out to people, that, even people that you don't think are interested in this. They need to know what's going on. Right. And I think once people do have these kind of background yeah. facts and, and uh, understanding of the implication, then it becomes important to them. But as you say, if the media isn't reporting even the basics of it, which they were not, yeah. and, um, you know, the politicians are busy, like there's so many bills and things going on, yeah. you know, and sometimes it's more fun in the house to be calling the other guy names or whatever yeah. um, right. than to be dealing with these more serious issues. And again, on the surface, many of these things sound, you know, okay, well, why wouldn't we want to try and, and be accountable if we're going to set climate targets? Yeah. You know, but people don't know that that's all entirely voluntary. There's yeah. no reason to legislate it because the Paris Agreement is voluntary. I was, I was going to mention that, but I wasn't sure whether or not you had a slide about that. Because I that, do, I do. That, yeah, so then let's let's just keep going and then we'll jump on that one because that, that to me was a bit of an eye-opener for that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So at the time, you know, all these ENGOs were really yeah. pushing to get this thing through. Um, and they want this legal accountability. But does it seem like a realistic goal? These are uh, the proposed targets, you can see in the red arrows here. Wow. Uh, does it seem like we could do this in 20 years no. without massive changes to our lifestyle? An industry. I mean, and actually, we've done very well because in the time represented here, we had 37% population increase 
and yet we really didn't rise. Almost flatlined, really. Yeah. I mean, you know, for that, for 37%. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the feds actually want to increase Canada's population to 100 million people. And um, there's a great blogger named Darshan Maharaja, and he did the math for us. He just was blown away by this when I posted it. Wow. Um, and so that, you know, if we increase the population that much, then it would, our, our emissions would be a 1.05 billion tons yearly. So, wow. you know, you can't have immigration and climate targets. You got to no. pick one. Yeah. Um, but they're not picking one. So we can never meet our targets as long as the immigration policies are as they and, are. And how many, do you know how many uh, immigrants are coming in every year? Uh, about 400,000, and they're planning yep. to push it up to 500,000, half wow. a million people. So, and yeah, 10 million, or in 10 years, that's uh, 50 million people, right? So it's uh, that seems, no, 50 million? No, it's in 10 years, it's 5 million. 5 million people, which yeah. is one, one eighth of our current population. You're right. right. There's no way that we could uh, possibly decrease as well as increase our population. Yeah. And as he says here, I'm not going to go near the supply of housing and services. So, yes. you know, all those yeah. people need health care. They need schools. They need a place to live. They need a car or transit. Um, and, and they need the assistance to integrate because yeah. when you're an immigrant, you always need help to figure out, you know, how life works here yeah. um, before you can get on your feet and really get going. That's right. And all that's expensive. I mean, it's a good investment, but it's an expensive uh, investment at the start. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we're broke after COVID. Yes. So in summary, Bill C-12 did pass. It's an attempt to put into law the goals of greenhouse gas reduction targets. Um, the impacts of Bill C-12 and a forced effort to reach net zero 2050 would destroy Canadian life as we know it today and making laws to force reductions in GHGs when there's no suitable alternative energy technology. That's the problem. Yes. That's market ready. Yeah. That will lead to economic disaster. I mean, people talk about small modular reactors as, you know, Alberta and Saskatchewan are partnering on that. Great idea. It's near market, but it's not market ready. No. You know, and there's lots of hoops to jump through before it is in the market and before it expands. So, mm -hmm. But Bill C-12 will offer a field day to environmental lawyers who want to, they already want to sue cities. You know, sue big oil for climate change impacts. Big oil owes your community for climate costs. Wow. Um, and that lawfare also costs us and society. It costs because yeah. the government has to pay their lawyers to fight these things. Yeah. It holds up the courts and delays all kinds of, of normal operations and drives off investors and jobs. So now let's go into our rebuttal to a healthy environment and a healthy economy. We see it as a move toward medieval living, and it is a cruel and unusual punishment. Mm -hmm. So uh, I already said what this is about. Uh, that's how our report looks. Uh, let's see what Judith Curry, who's a real climate scientist, has to say about the toxic rhetoric of climate change. We've been told climate change is an existential crisis. However, based on our current assessment of the science, the climate threat is not an existential one, even in its most alarming hypothetical incarnations. 
So she's saying that really, you know, as long as we're looking at it as an existential threat, then we can't make good policy choices, you mm-hmm. know, because then it becomes really black and white. Yeah. Rather than saying, okay, we'd like to phase out uh, fossil fuels, but we can't do it for 100 years. Mm-hmm. In the interim, here's what we can do. Uh, you know, instead we're saying, no, we're going to do it in eight years and for sure by 2050, yeah. uh, which makes makes for very irrational decision making and policy. And, and who would have made that arbitrary 2050? Would it have been politicians? I would say it's certainly not scientists that are able to say, you know, yeah, we can probably get this done by 2050. Uh, I would say that it's politicians, but it's probably premised on some uh, quasi-scientific study, you know, where they say, oh, our carbon budget, you know, Greta is always talking about our carbon budget. We're going to blow through our carbon budget, meaning that um, those who think that carbon dioxide is the main driver of climate change, they believe that there's a set amount of carbon dioxide that can be released from human industry. And after that, then catastrophic um, existence existential events will occur yeah um but the the vast majority of climate scientists on the realist side say that carbon dioxide is not the main driver of climate change Mm -hmm. and over the years even the ipcc the intergovernmental panel on climate change has reduced dramatically reduced their evaluation of the warming effect of carbon dioxide Mm -hmm. meaning we could have more carbon dioxide but it won't cause warming yes, um, or not much, very nominal. And William Happer and uh, Canadian professor William von Wingarden, they've done some work on this showing that it's really not going to warm anything up. <laughs> and, even, and even, yeah, from what we've heard and even what uh, Robert Lyman was saying last week was that uh, it, it, it does grow and then it plateaus. Yes. And and really, it just won't go past that. But yet, the they're you know they're they're basically making it sound like if we keep doing this, uh, trees are going to spontaneously combust. And that's, that's right. <laughs> not not at all what's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, and the media have jumped on this bandwagon. Like you asked about the CAG that yeah. I belong to, they wrote a report which was based on an opinion poll as to whether or not they should report the climate uh, change issues as a crisis or not. And they decided, yeah, (laughs) based on an opinion poll, they didn't even investigate to see if there actually is any kind of crisis situation in climate. So how bad is that? And their own ethics say that, um, you know, we always um, strive for accuracy, (laughs) but they they're joking. They don't. Because no, they're all funded by the government, almost yes. all of them, except for black locks. No. You know, they take a big bundle of money. And the alternative media, of course, are funded by people like your viewers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, they don't uh, jump to the tone of or the tune of the of the um, funders, but the mainstream media does. So yeah, that's um, a whole other topic, and maybe we'll have you back for that because I know. Sure, that, I'd love to. Yeah, that yeah. would definitely be a good thing that I'm I'm close to in terms of media too. So let's uh, <laughs> just keep going here. Okay, so um, you know a lot of the environmental law firms or charities are going after the government based on the Charter of Rights, mm-hmm. and so we looked at the Charter of Rights and. Provision number 12 says everyone has a right not to be subjected to any cruel and unusual treatment or punishment. 
Yeah. Well, okay. So we think that the um, healthy environment, healthy economy approach is uh, the exact opposite. We think it's pretty medieval. And back mm -hmm. in the little ice age, which was about 200 years ago, was actually between th uh, 1350 and uh, 1850. Mm -hmm. um, it was a much cooler period of time. Weather was very erratic. Yeah. And so this is our first scientific advisor, Dr. Sally Bellunis, an astrophysicist. And she gave a presentation on what happened to people in that time. So superstition and witchcraft bred a precautionary response, uh -huh. eradicate those responsible for the storm in this period of new storminess. And we see that when people are making accusations against so-called deniers, yeah. right? Like they want to get rid of us, take us to the International Court of Criminal Justice, charge us with crimes against humanity. And look at all those bad storms that are happening because maybe of that's, Maybe that's what we should just blame it, blame it on the witches. Well, they'll just start burning people like they did. As it says, now it was well known that people could cook weather with the help of Satan. Yeah. And so thus did extreme conditions in the severest part of the Little Ice Age contribute to Europe's most horrific period of mass executions and witch trials. Yeah. This wow. was completely legal, and it was undertaken by highly educated upper social strata. Now, there were skeptics who stood up, but they were often accused of sorcery to squash any debate. So well, that sounds very much like today. It's like fact checkers, but witch checkers. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Wow. Yeah, it's really horrific when you read about it. You know, and quite often they might have been sort of the village idiot, if you like, or the, the local uh, person with maybe some kind of uh, schizophrenia, or maybe yeah. it was somebody who, uh, uh, you know, there were a lot of medicine women in that time, yeah. you know, who were actually kind of the local doctor, but they would be deemed to be, you know, stirring up some concoction to make bad weather, and that'd be it. Wow. So ironically, no one wants to debate people who have a realistic view of climate change, but ironically, after that report came out, um, CBC actually said, now there can be a real debate. <laughs> so we tried to get that going, but it didn't happen. Uh, one thing that most Albertans are probably aware of is the Supreme Court ruling that the carbon tax is constitutional. Yes. Yeah. But something you may not be aware of is that they did not rule on climate science. They only ruled on the constitutionality. Mm -hmm. Now, all the ENGOs presented as if they did, because the judge in question, um, they do two parts in a judgment. One is called orbiter dicta, which is a kind of material <clears throat> that's around the uh, the trial or the case, okay. yeah. uh, background material, if you like, or preamble. And then they do a ratio decidendi, which is the actual decision. Um, but people are always quoting stuff from the judge's orbiter dicta. Okay. So whenever you see that, uh, you can just reject it and remember that they didn't rule on climate science. Mm -hmm. And actually, from from what we've we've been told, uh, is that basically they they you know Jason Kenney and his group went to them and said, okay, we want to challenge this. And one of the uh, one of the uh, the beginning parts of the document basically said, we we don't uh, or I guess we. We do agree that climate change is an issue and such and such. So the judge took a look at it and said, well, both parties agree that that this is an issue. 
So we're basically just going to bypass that part because you well, uh, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, as I understand it from a lawyer that we spoke with about this, okay. you know, things are only one issue is argued in court at a time. Okay. And the principle being argued was whether or not this was constitutional. Okay. Um, and so, uh, you know, you do this repetition in the opening of what the other party said, because you're basically confirming, okay, we're not going to argue about this thing. Yes, and actually okay. at the time we had a number of people call us, some were members and some were people from the public, you know, begging us to, yeah. you know, go to court on climate and all this. And we said, you know, it's a constitutional case. We yes, we're not okay. lawyers. We don't have any constitutional lawyers and, yeah. um, and people, some people were quite mad at us for not doing it. And we said, look, it's, it's you know, we, we can't do anything. Yeah. Not to mention we're a very small organization. So if anybody wants to cough up some money and help us out, that would be great. Yeah. But um, but we just don't have uh, the time and, and manpower to and go. And it's, it's tough to fight the government when they've got an unlimited number of amount of money. And it's basically our money. Yeah. And they can just use that against us. Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, this is something that people should know about. How did we get here? Yes. Well, Catherine McKenna, um, she spoke at the Calgary Chamber of Commerce, and this is actually what she said. So when I took this job, I immediately went to the climate negotiations. That was the Paris Agreement, COP21. And I actually didn't know about the climate file. I had to figure out what a COP was. That means Conference of the Parties, yeah. your signatory to UNFCCC agreement. What is this COP? Many people had been to more than one COP, 13, 14 COPs. I got there, dug in, and we were able to get the very ambitious climate agreement. But then the rubber had to hit the road here. Wow. So somebody went there who knew zero on the yeah. file and signed us up for even more stringent targets. Uh, but in fact, you know, the Paris Agreement is always presented by ENGOs and by yep. the government as yep. if we have to do this. Yes. But it's a purely voluntary agreement. Yeah. All of the countries that are signatory to it, it's all voluntary. There's no legal re uh, ramification for not reaching targets. Nothing. It, it's, yep. it's all fiction. Um, but very few people know that. So our viewers, if there's one thing that you take home from this is, I'm going to read it. In fact, the Paris Agreement is a purely voluntary agreement, which only requires reporting in five-year intervals. So, but it's, it's total, total voluntary. We signed up, Canada signed up for it. And, um, and now we're stuck with essentially just doing what, what we've, uh, what we've said we would do, but yet you know, from what I've read on it, we don't necessarily have to even follow that. We can no, say, no. yeah, you know what, we're going to try and do this. But if we, if after five years we don't do it, well, that's okay. Then we'll, we'll just try a little bit more. Right. I mean, like China keeps saying, you know, yeah, we'll be uh, net zero by 2060, maybe. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> you know? maybe. Well, they won't. Yeah, no, they don't, you know, none of the other large emitting countries are making any serious effort because of course it would destroy your economy. And yeah. as we see in Europe, it will kill people. Wow. People will die. Yeah. So uh, uh, it's self-inflicted economic suicide. Yes, it is. Completely unnecessary. 
So this is what McKenna committed Canada to. And you can see from this pie chart, the reduction of industrial activity in Canada. And the last image is, of course, from the Great Depression. Yeah. So we don't want to go there, but that's where this train is rolling right now. And of course, people think, oh, well, you know, all the countries in the world signed on to the Paris Agreement. So, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously we have to, too. Well, the uh, non-OECD countries, you know, the developing nations, they only signed on because they were promised $100 billion a year yeah. in the Green Climate Fund, uh, which would be paid by us, by Western nations. And it would be doled out to them without any accountability. And just so you know, China, even though it's hot on the heels of the U.S. as the largest economy in the world, yeah. it's still deemed to be a developing nation. Yeah. So they would be really? able to, yep, by the UN. So yeah. they would be able to, to take from this fund. So would Saudi Arabia. But Greece, which is bankrupt, has yeah. to put money in. <laughs> so this is how crazy this world is. So here's another little report by Robert Lyman from that time. But sometimes reading those historical reports give you better perspective on what's mm -hmm. going on now. And this was from 2019 that Robert wrote, uh, Promises versus Performance. Mm -hmm. So you keep hearing from these ENGOs what horrible emitters Canada is and what a tremendous climate reparations we should pay for being such bad people. Well, that's baloney. Here's the top 10 plus the EU. These yeah. are the top 10 emitters in the world. And let's look at the change in... Yes. Uh, CO2 emissions from 2008 to 2018. So for China, the change was an increase of 28%. And these are megatons? Uh, the, is that, this is, is, I'm just talking about that. Yes. yes um, but in, in terms of like, uh, you know, 2008, yeah. there's say 7,000 uh, megatons. Yeah. And in 2018, yeah. there's 9,500. Yeah, 28%. That's quite the drastic change. Yeah, and for the U.S., they actually dropped 9%, and that's mostly because they replaced some of their coal plants with natural gas. Mm -hmm. um, the European Union also dropped 16%, but mm -hmm. that's mostly because they drove industry offshore. They wow. deindustrialized. industrialized mm -hmm. um, India went up 69%. Russia was down 0.2%. Yeah. Uh, Japan down 10%. Um, South Korea up 25%, Iran 30%, Canada, oops, sorry, Saudi Arabia 35% up, and Canada 1% up. Yeah. And yet we're treated as if we're some kind of villains. Yeah. And, and looking at it, it's 2018. So Canada had 550 megatons. And mm -hmm. again, China had 9,500 megatons. So, you know, roughly 120th uh is what canada has and yet we're we're doling out quite a bit in terms of uh money to uh, these carbon credits or however you want to say it right right yeah that's that's ridiculous yeah and you can see the more cops that there are conference of the parties the more emissions yeah. so you can see here that um you know china is this red line here it's the largest emitter yeah. U.S. is way down here. The EU, 28 countries are here. Yeah. India, Russia, Japan, and international shipping and aviation. You know, people are always going on and on about aviation, how terrible it is. Yeah. Um, it's not. <laughs> this includes shipping and aviation. From, from the entire world. 
Exactly. It's still less than what Japan is, or roughly even, let's just say, what Japan puts out. Yeah. Canada isn't even on that chart. No, it would be uh, combined within other countries, but yeah. we would be way down here. We'd yeah. be like 1.6%. So, yeah. and you can see here with the climate agreements, the uh, CO2 concentration continues to rise. Mm -hmm. uh, it should be noted, though, that Mother Nature is a huge, huge emitter. Um, you know, people look at this and they go, oh, my gosh, you know, we did all of that. Well, yeah. no, it's most of it's Mother Nature. We contributed, that's for sure, but most of it's Mother Nature. And would the Paris Agreement accomplish the goal of reducing emissions? No. And this is a peer-reviewed study by uh, Bjorn Lomberg, who found that the impact of the Paris Climate Conference would be 0.05 degrees Celsius reduction in warming by 2100 if all the countries met their commitments by 2030. Wow. So that's immeasurable. It's ridiculous. You know, and when people say, oh, we have to do our part, uh, no. <laughs> and he's got a great book. You know, he is uh, what we call a warmest. You know, he does agree with the anthropogenic global warming. He does think that we will continue to warm, but he think it he thinks it makes far more sense to spend limited public monies on improving life for everyone in the world rather yeah. than, um, you know, giving it to green crony capitalists and yeah. wasting it on wind and solar. Do we, do we actually know how much money has been given so far in terms of uh, the COP and, and, you know, like uh, if there's an actual, like, is it a hundred billion? Is it a trillion? Do we know? I don't have a cumulative number for that, but I know that recently Jamie Dimon of um, J.P. Morgan, I think, uh, said that uh, we spent like $3 trillion on wind and solar, you know, trying to do the energy transition. Wow. And we've only changed it by 2%. Wow. Yeah. That $3 trillion probably could have gone into uh, – Let's let's just say oil and gas and, and making making products that would actually be better for uh, for uh, for humans, maybe for animals and all that on the world stage, as opposed to just, you know what, we got to We got to decrease this pop or decrease population, decrease the uh, the uh, climate, uh, you know, the temperature change or however you, you want to say it. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, further to your question from before, yeah. you know, is Canada a large emitter and would um, net zero 2050 in Canada change global emissions? Yeah. Well, China emits in one month what Canada puts out in one and a half years. Wow. Uh, so you can see on the map here, if Canada's wiped out off the map, there'd be no difference. There'd be no difference. There you go, people. Yeah. So in, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, no matter what Canada does, we make absolutely no difference to climate change except we're still being forced to pay carbon tax and all that sort of stuff. And, and it still makes no difference at all. Right. And to bear this cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah. And there's another report here. Um, uh, Robert Lyman wrote the tragic delusion of doing our share. And he talks about the fact that so many people feel, you know, that because it's a global issue, we should pitch in and, you know, we're Canadians. We do like to help. We do like to get in there and do what we can. Yeah. But he explains more about this futile folly in yeah. both the reports. Canadians always say sorry, too. 
That's right. Sorry, it's our fault. Sorry. sorry, sorry. <laughs> so now we are sorry. We're now sorry that Absolutely. no due diligence was done on the Paris Agreement and that ideology ruled over evidence. So let's do the due diligence together. Yes. Um, how am I doing time-wise? Okay, so here's the healthy economy and healthy environment cover of the federal report, and here's our report again. Is net zero possible by 2050? No. And you can see this chart here that in the era of climate diplomacy, global fossil fuel consumption has risen uh, 57%. And although this just went up to 2017, there's, you know, it's a nominal difference. Um, you can see that we would have to uh, reduce um, fossil fuel use by 90% by 2050, requiring the reduction of 1 million tons of oil equivalent energy every day until 2050. Decreasing 1 million tons of equivalent energy every oil single equivalent. day. Yeah. And so what is the equivalent of 1 million tons of oil equivalent energy? Yeah. Well, that would be the same as 1.5 times one gigawatt nuclear plant, 1500 times two megawatt wind turbines, 14 million times uh, 295 watt wow. solar panels. Wow. And we would have to be doing that every day. Every single day. Yeah, so you know, that's ridiculous. It's, it's not really, gonna happen. That's right. And, and I, I'm gonna take a snapshot of this and send that to uh, our premier because she needs to see this because right now she is still, she's still touting the whole net zero thing. Well, you see, uh, this is another tricky kind of thing like net zero in, you know, the principle of net zero is that we remove from the air or we don't emit, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, like that we're at a neutral level. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, or buy carbon offsets or whatever, right? But um, but even if we buy the carbon offsets, like, what does that mean? Like, who, buying, who gets the money? Well, and, what and I like about carbon what offsets, that, what is that money used for? Does it buy more carbon? Does it buy less carbon? Uh, it, yeah, it's it uh, what I like to say. It's like it's like paying a burglar to yeah. go and rob somebody else's house. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think the whole carbon market is very shady. And my favorite statement about it is the, that the carbon markets are very different from other commodity markets, even though it's structured as a commodity. But, you know, it's like if you buy a rail car of wheat, you yeah. conceivably could get a call, you know, from your traders saying, OK, your rail car is here. Come and get it or pork yeah. rallies or whatever. Yeah. Right. But but the carbon markets entail the lack of delivery of an invisible substance to no one. And these markets are worth billions of dollars. Yes. Yeah. You know, but it's really just a shell game. It's um, so, uh, and I think it's a Ponzi scheme that will collapse and it'll take the world with it. So um, another question we have to answer, is the world moving to a clean economy and phasing out fossil fuels? Because they say that a few times in that report. Mm -hmm. And you can see here the graph from BP. You can see on top, that's renewables, that thin little orange line. Yeah. Then we have hydroelectricity, then nuclear energy is yellow. 
And then we have coal, natural gas, and oil, and they're growing. <laughs> the developing nations are just tremendous users of fossil fuels, yeah. and they're not going to give that up. So um, these three energy sources, oil, gas, and coal, provide 84% of global energy needs. Yeah. And wind and solar, only 2%. And that's only, of course, for electricity generation. Uh, you know, we should never forget one of the problems that Europe has right now is they have a lack of natural gas. Yeah. And we use natural gas for heating and for mm -hmm. industrial processes and for making plastics and other kinds of products. So um, you can't do any of that with wind and solar. So. No they will never replace, fully replace fossil fuels. And even looking at the graph, so you can kind of see that, uh, you know, renewables are, are stretching out. Let's just say that because obviously there's some, uh, some investment and, and people are trying to do stuff and actually make some renewables. So, you know, over the course of uh, what, say 10 years, the, you know, they've roughly maybe say four, eight times that amount versus hydroelectricity and nuclear energy, which, they are growing, but essentially they're the same size. And the reason is, is because nuclear energy and hydroelectricity takes years and years and years to make a particular plant. And especially if you needed to make a, a large enough plant to say uh, power all of Alberta, you know, like you would need, you couldn't just say, you know what, we're going to, we're going to fix this and have it done by next year. That's probably 20 years out. Mm, easy. Right? Easy. So, so it's no wonder that these, I mean, looking at, again, looking at the graph, we've got oil, natural gas, and coal. They're, they're still stretching because we need that. Um, but the, yeah, to, to basically try and put everything else into renewables, hydroelectricity, and, and nuclear energy, it doesn't even look like it adds up to what natural gas is. No, it doesn't. No. no and also, um, you know, hydroelectricity has uh, lots of limitations yeah. regarding geography. Yeah. You know, because there are only a few places that are appropriate for big dams. Yeah. And, um, and, and you also have many activists against them. Yeah. Um, and nuclear energy, of course, the Greens hate nuclear energy. It's the only non-emitting, non-CO2 emitting source of power. Yeah. Um, but they hate it and they stand in the way of it. And it, as you mentioned, it is complicated and rather expensive yeah. to build but worth it in the end because yeah. those plants really can put out a lot of power yeah oh. and again it would be well if we knew that we had to have this by 2050 i think we better have a bunch of plans going and uh and hiring workers and and doing all that in order to actually reach that goal but nothing as far as i know has even happened and i know the premier has actually talked about kind of doing a two-way uh lateral move where um let's just say alberta would supply manitoba with natural gas or oil and gas products and manitoba could build a hydroelectric dam and then supply alberta with electricity so but again that whole infrastructure needs to be made that you know land has to be expropriated or or, or you know basically figured out how we're actually going to transport this there's a lot of work that needs to be done in order to just make that small portion happen never mind globally that's right yeah and actually there's an snc lavalin report yeah um about um the build out required 
to decarbonize Canada. I didn't include it in this report because I didn't know about it until recently. Yeah. Uh, but um, I can send you the link to it. You can share it with the viewers. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, and they they need you know they're saying things like we need to build 115 uh, Bruce nuclear power plants. <laughs> so. Wow. Yeah, it's a ludicrous number of plants. And I think Joseph Fournier recently did an article in the Western Standard on that too, if you just want the Coles Notes version. Yeah, yeah. So uh, can renewables replace conventional fuels? Well, no, they can't. Uh, even though in that report from the feds, they keep saying that they can. Mm -hmm. So I think everyone should uh, watch Global Warning, which is a great film by Matthew Embry. He's a Calgary filmmaker, award-winning filmmaker. And um, he really, uh, you know, took a very deep look at the challenges, the conflicting viewpoints. And he didn't try to come to a decision in the documentary. Mm -hmm. He just tried to show people the challenges of these different perspectives. But one of the most enlightening parts is the interview with Dr. Fritz Fahrenholt, who's an environmentalist. He's a former German minister of environment in two states. He's the author of books on environmental protection and climate change uh, being driven by the sun. Uh -huh. He's a past expert commentator of the IPCC, a professor of chemistry, and former CEO of a renewable energy company. So he's our renaissance man. He's I got mean, a whole picture. Absolutely. And so really watch this uh, film. And uh, the link here is a video on-demand link that goes to um, a link that uh, we sponsor. So we get a small Okay. But you can well, also find it on the Super Channel as well. We'll definitely include these links. And I've got the presentation, okay. so I'll copy and paste these links and post them uh, after this is uh, posted. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Anyway, great film to watch. And actually, uh, Premier Smith is in the film as well. And uh, very touching um, interviews with her when she's on the air and having people phone in and say, you know, I just have to lay, just had to lay off 30 guys and Wow. My business yeah. is crashing and yeah. you know for a period that was her daily um feed from the audience yeah, yeah. Wow. so you know we are also told in the healthy economy or healthy environment healthy economy report that clean tech is a multi-trillion global opportunity for canada mm -hmm. but it isn't <laughs> so here's two more reports by robert lyman um, clean tech technology is not a growth industry in Canada. And uh, he points out that the environmental and clean technology products account, usually referred to by the government as the clean tech sector, had a total income in 2018 of $66.3 billion. This account's share of Canadian GDP has been about 3% since 2007, despite the fact that Stats Canada constantly adds more industries to the category. So there's a whole raft of reports here um, that uh, people could have a look at. And are Canadians being asked to prop up looming clean tech investment bubbles? And I would say the answer is yes. And this graph is from the work of, uh, what's it called? Uh, Thunder Said, that's the name of his blog. Rob West is a CFA. And he published his concerns that significant parts of the energy transition, 
the key areas promoted by the Trudeau government plan are at risk of becoming investment bubbles. And a bubble is an economic cycle that's characterized by the rapid escalation of market value, particularly in the price of assets. Mm -hmm. Fast inflation is followed by a quick decrease in value or contraction that's sometimes referred to as a crash or a bubble burst. Mm -hmm. And in 2018, the uh, CEO of the Spanish company Iberdrola warned that the renewables uh, worldwide faced a, a global Enron style collapse. Wow. Yeah. That's and now, now they're like up to here like this. People are going, oh yeah, we're going to put more renewables in because look at the price of fossil fuels and that will save us from fossil fuels. Well, they can't get, uh, they can't build things anymore because copper price of copper is spiked, that's right. minerals have spiked, the price yeah. of energy to make these units yes, spiked. That's right. So Vestas is laying off people. Um, one of the other company, they said they're, uh, I think it was, uh, it starts with an O, I forget. They're, they're just selling at cost just to keep a few people on staff. So not good. That's that's ridiculous. Do you want to just go, can you go back? Just uh, I just wanted to point out uh, if you're, you know, they, they talk about uh, full-blown bubbles. So you can see from a, a zero to 10 scale and roughly, you know, uh, things are beginning and uh, and then things are built and then it gets to the top there. And uh, basically, according to this chart, it says government guarantee, which I guess basically means that, yeah, we will support you and do whatever we can, can do. And then it bottoms out. Then, then the, the bubble bursts, right? And we've heard about that in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the web, bubble or uh, the internet bubble and we've yeah, got housing not. market and uh, in the States in 2008, whatever it was. Um, and here we're looking at this chart and it says green hydrogen, which we've heard tons about in the last couple of years here in Alberta. And it looks like we're getting close to that, that bubble bursting. Uh, and then electric vehicles, because it certainly sounds like everybody needs an electric vehicle. That's great. Even though we don't have the infrastructure for people to actually have them at their homes. Um, and then it, yeah, it does talk about, uh, biofuels, uh, biomass, wind, solar batteries, batteries, again, another, um, technology that needs to actually be worked on in order for us to, to go through and do the electric vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. So interesting that, that these are even on that chart of, uh, of becoming a bubble. Well, they're all, you know, um, subsidized by government. Yeah. I mean, they wouldn't exist without the massive no, subsidies right. absolutely market access that that's uh, and re regulations. You know, yeah. if they're going to phase out um, ice cars by 2035, yeah, then I guess people who want a new car will have to buy an EV, right? Yeah. So yeah. you know, there's these preferential market regulations. Yeah, but without them, none of this would happen. Yeah, it's interesting you said ice car because. <laughs> It was an ice car, internal combustion engine. I've never actually heard anybody say that as ice. I've, I've oh. heard ICE. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I probably being, should have said being ICE. In Al being in Alberta, we all know about ice cars anyways. <laughs> yeah, when you go out and it's minus 40, everybody's car is an ice car. That's right. Um, another thing that they say in the healthy environment, healthy economy, is they claim that a carbon tax reduced emissions in Sweden and Norway. And you've probably heard Greta Yes. through yes. this as well and everyone goes yeah look at that the swedes did it we can too well why well because um 
the World Nuclear Association says six nuclear reactors entered commercial service in the 1970s and six yeah. in the 1980s. So uh, even in the 1990s, Norway instituted a very stiff carbon tax, but it was found that carbon taxes contributed to only a 2% reduction in emissions. Mm -hmm. And they found the better way to reduce emissions was simply to work with industry, you know, yeah. to set reasonable deadlines, to work on things that could be reduced, whether it's noxious pollution or whether it's CO2 emissions. Um, but, you know, incremental and not... Uh, economically destructive, like what we're trying to do. And you can see here also, you know, when people hold up Denmark and Sweden and Norway, like, wow, look at these fabulous clean countries. Well, yeah. they're tiny little countries. Yeah. I mean, Denmark would be a postage stamp on this map of Canada. Yeah. So they're very tiny. Most of their population lives on the seacoast where yeah. you have access to sea freight, which is very cheap. Yeah. And, you know, what, 5 million, 9 million people, very small populations. Mm -hmm. And they just don't have the vast distances. And also their weather, even though they're it's northern black. country, their yes. weather is much more temperate than Canada's. It is, yes. So, so what the carbon tax and rebate is really all about, and I think everyone watching has figured this out, it's tax them and bribe them with their own money. Yeah. So we've got a little video called Carbon Kleptomania and a report. Um, of course, those are now from a couple of years ago, but the content is still fine. And then they keep saying, well, all economists agree that the carbon tax is the best way to reduce emissions, but that is not true. So um, this is the late Emil van Brochhoven from uh, Europe. Uh, zero carbon policy fooling 97% of the people all the time. That's on our blog. And this is Robert P. Murphy talking about William Nordhaus, who won a Nobel Prize for his climate change right. economics. But Nordhaus favors a carbon tax to slow climate change, but his own model shows that the UN's target would make humanity poorer than doing nothing at all about climate change. And then we have a series of short clips with uh, Professor Ross McKittrick, who recently wrote an article in the Financial Post quoting the parliamentary budget officer who showed that um, Canada's climate change efforts will not have any impact on climate change. Yeah. And uh, is hydrogen green or blue the clean energy magic bullet? No. So uh, we will always need blue hydrogen, which is made from natural gas. Mm -hmm. Hydrogen is used, uh, very important for fertilizer. Mm -hmm. and this is why in Europe, a lot of fertilizer plants have shut down because mm -hmm. the cost of natural gas there is just running them out of business. Yeah. Fortunately, we'll still be able to produce fertilizer. Green, fertilizer, or green hydrogen is supposedly made by uh, wind and solar plants driving an electrolysis process to split water, turn it into hydrogen because you have to make hydrogen. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't uh, just dig it out of the ground yeah. like we can with oil and gas. But the problem, because you have to make hydrogen, you lose energy in every part of the process. And so Professor Samuel Profari, who wrote these books and also wrote this short article, he says that burning hydrogen to generate energy when hydrogen has been produced by energy 
is like keeping oneself warm burning Louis Vuitton handbags. <laughs> Inevitably, any hydrogen produced will end up in chemistry and not in a motor vehicle. Yeah. Wow. And this is why hydrogen is no magic solution for the EU Green Deal. Uh, and this is by uh, Jürgen Henningsen. Uh, and he explains that the conversion of electricity, green or not, into hydrogen implies a loss of about 30% of the energy content of electricity. Whatever subsequent step is taken in making hydrogen into practical use will imply another 30% loss of the 70% remaining, uh, leaving us with less than half the energy in the original electricity being available for useful purposes. So it's clear that there will be big money involved in the implementation of this strategy. And unfortunately, with the decision that 30% of the recovery fund, as well as 1 trillion euro plus seven year budget will have to be spent in support of climate change, there will also be lots of easy money. So it's really, you know, it's just another green crony capitalist trick yeah. to cash in on the big solution for net zero um when you know actually what this all reminds me of is uh, the little book black book of scams and this wow. is this is from the competition bureau mm -hmm. and i saw this at my bank the other day and it reminded me so much of climate change and carbon trading and things like hydrogen where um you know it's uh teaching people how not to fall for scams when people phone and say uh, or they send you an email saying, oh, yes. oh, I lost my wallet. I need help immediately. Please yeah. send me money, right? Yeah. Well, that's what all the climate change uh, folk are doing. We to change, us. We should change some of those pages to say exactly that. Yeah. And then leave them in the banks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, you know, as we see, people are cashing in on this urgency. Um, and uh, another factor with hydrogen that really isn't talked about at all. And in the uh, Healthy Environment, Healthy Economy report of the federal government, they really yeah. pushed hydrogen like, it's the next solution. Yeah, it's gonna be yeah. easy. Um, they really didn't talk about the risks of hydrogen in the hands of the public. So hydrogen is produced and processed and uh, shipped and everything in um, industrial settings. But the difference is that people are trained you know, there are very strict safety protocols and there's instrumentation monitoring. But when you start to put that in the hands of the public, you know, you're not going to be able to uh, institute that kind of careful monitoring and instrumentation. And the public, you know, they're not going to be properly trained. Yeah. And you know how people like to tinker with things. Oh, and, yes. Yeah. You know, pfft. This can't be any worse than, I mean, I've had many people on Twitter tell me that, you know, it's the same as natural gas. <laughs> no, no, it's very, very explosive. Very. So in industrial settings, there's strict safety protocols. Um, hydrogen is very unusual. As the smallest molecule, it can actually pen embrittle metal and then mm -hmm. it can penetrate metal. And, and because it has to be so highly pressurized because it's a very diffuse light gas, yeah. then even that uh, uh, exit from a small crack creates static electricity that can spark an explosion. Yeah. So it's invisible. There's no smell. It's highly explosive. And as I just mentioned, it can generate static electricity. Yeah. 
And the blast range is the size of a football field. Wow. And it has to be stored under extremely high pressure. So all of this is also like very energy intense. And none of these risk factors are clearly stated in the Canada's hydrogen strategy document. So, mm -hmm. you know, people are really being led down the garden path in terms of safety consciousness on hydrogen mm -hmm. and its, its ultimate use in public life. Now, um, can we just decarbonize by installing EV chargers, EV public transit or mass transit? No. So this is a report by Robert Lyman. He based it on a report by a fellow named Tanton, Thomas Tanton out of the mm -hmm. States. And he found that, you know, uh, to electrify the U.S. would cost a fortune. Um, and to do a similar electrification decarbonization in Canada, the cost of Canadian 3.6 trillion is equal to 95,000 for every person in Canada. So that that's basically getting rid of oil and gas and just putting in an electric grid just so that everybody goes uh, electric cars, uh, public transit, that sort of thing. Yeah. Wow. So everything would be electrified. But so Robert Lyman did this based on Thomas Tanton's review. Now, our Ken Gregory, who's our research director mm -hmm. and a professional engineer, he looked at it again and he looked at some other work that our professional engineering team had done. And he realized that Tanton had uh, done, um, I just want to explain this in a simple way, kind of too simple uh, an extrapolation. Mm -hmm. Like many times people say, oh, well, you know, if we have uh, a two megawatt wind mill, that's the same as two megawatts of coal. Well, it's not because no. the wind is reliant on weather mm -hmm. and the coal is not. Mm -hmm. The coal-fired plant is not. That's right. uh, then they say, oh, well, we only need batteries maybe for four or five hours. Well, no, you might need batteries to back up the whole system for a month. Yes. You know, there's uh, one professional engineer in Alberta has an item on LinkedIn called uh, the winter... Uh, winter of discontent, I think it is. And he found that it would cost $69 billion uh, for a day for proper power for all of Alberta, if we were wow. going with only batteries, right? Um, but anyway, so Ken did a reanalysis, taking into account these extra hours and uh, reserve capacity that you need to have. And he found that the total capital cost of electrification uh, would be 290 trillion U.S. dollars, 13.5 <laughs> times the U.S. <laughs> gross domestic product, and that's that's like what five times the amount of the entire glo global domestic product. I think yeah. like 60 trillion or something a year. Right, and uh, I mean, there's a new report out also by a fellow named Simon Michaud who shows that there simply is not enough mine materials no. to do this anyway. But you know when you have non-engineers making these assessments and that's what we have all these environmental groups yeah. uh, david suzuki foundation and blah 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 yeah. and sometimes they've even partnered with people at universities but they've done a lot of like modeling right but because they don't work in the actual engineering of the power grid mm -hmm. they don't get it they yeah. they make these uh, you know superficial calculations saying oh well if we have a um five megawatt power plant and we're going to replace it with you know five megawatts of wind yeah. you know it's 
not an equal comparison. No, not at all. Right. And, and five megawatts, five megawatts of a of a battery would cost yeah. like a ridiculous amount of money compared to just a, a natural gas fired plant. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's ridiculous. We have another piece on our blog called Solar Realities, yeah. and it does do an assessment on solar and batteries, and it's exorbitant. And so speaking of decarbonizing and EVs, again, in the federal government report, they made no calculation whatsoever for the additional power. Uh, another one of our professional engineering contributors uh, showed that uh, just for the EV policy, and this was when it was to 2040, now it's mm -hmm. 2035, we would need to install 10,000 megawatts additional power generation. So that would be like about a dozen power plants like Site C or Muskrat Falls. Yeah. Each of these projects is billions of dollars over budget and stalled. And stalled. These, wow. these types of plants need a horizon of 20 to 30 years to build one. Yeah, we talked about that just in hydroelectricity and nuclear for sure. I mean, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And not one new power generation plant is on the planning board. And it would cost billions in transmission lines and integration because renewables are direct current and That's the grid right. is alternating. Yeah. And the embedded emissions of this would be huge. You know, when you start to make all these things, there are emissions from making yes. them. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. That no one ever calculates. So they go, yeah, we'll cut all the emissions by putting in a LRT downtown. Well, <laughs> they found that um, with the Portland North rail line, uh, the embedded emissions, it would take 172 years before the rail line actually equivalently reduced wow. <laughs> the emissions embedded in making the line. So, you know, who's going to invest in Canada today except green crony capitalists? Yeah. And that's that's really the problem. We're just going to be, uh, the taxpayers are going to be pickpocketed and um, taken to the cleaners. and right now they've instituted a new 30 percent tax subsidy within the uh recent budget for renewables mm -hmm. so um anyway uh and the bigger problem that's not mentioned yeah. anywhere <laughs> if we electrify all of society including digital id and everything else and there's a carrington event one yeah. of these huge solar flares yeah, or an EMP, you know, yeah. the world is in a state of war basically on many fronts. Now an yeah. EMP is um, a, an electromagnetic pulse. So a, a missile can be fired at fairly high altitude over a place and exploded in the air, but that, um, that uh, explosion, instead of dropping a bomb, it sends out an electromagnetic pulse yeah. that literally fries all of the electronics everywhere and everything. You know, that would put us back into the dark ages. Absolutely. So, you know, and would we be saving the world from natural disasters like extreme weather? Will the Paris rule book save us? No. <laughs> and that's just cargo cult magical thinking. 
And that's what underlies climate change policies. So here's a quote from Judith Curry. I would like to read it. Thinking that catastrophes like major hurricane landfalls, massive forest fires, etc., will be cured by eliminating fossil fuel emissions is laughable. Well, it's really not funny. Thinking that eliminating fossil fuel emissions will solve the problem of extreme weather events is very sad, sort of on the level of doing rain dances. Everything that goes wrong, they blame on fossil fuel-driven climate change. Imagine how surprised they would be if we were ever to be successful at eliminating fossil fuel emissions, and then we still had bad weather. Wow. And over on the other side, there's a book uh, by Roger PLK Jr., uh, which is very good, showing that really there's no more disasters, there are no greater losses. It's the fact that now, instead of a bunch of wooden houses in the Bow River Valley of Calgary, um, it, like they were in 1905 when it flooded, um, in uh, the more recent flood, you know, we had multi-billion dollar office mm -hmm. towers. Yeah. So that's why it cost more. And of course, again, the federal government's always saying it should not be free to pollute. Well, you know, about the time that these guys who are in power now were born, <laughs> Canadians had already begun paying for pollution. So for the past 50 years, we've been paying for pollution and reducing noxious emissions mm -hmm. and doing a great job of it. And you can see that under the National Air Pollution Surveillance Program. And we've got a couple of videos and a blog post on that. And how about planting trees? Will planting 2 billion trees save the planet? No, even though Minister O'Regan thinks it will. He claims that 2 billion trees will capture 12 megatons of carbon by 2050. <laughs> so in some context, as I said before, China emits in one month uh, 819 megatons a month, mm -hmm. about what Canada emits in one and a half years. So 12 megatons of carbon capture by 2050 is nothing <laughs> and uh, trees also die or burn and they emit the same or more carbon dioxide that they sequestered which is why in carbon in climate accounting terms we cannot claim the boreal forest as a carbon sink plus there's not enough room in canada to plant all these extra trees unless we start wiping out agricultural land I, I really like big numbers i like you know billion and trillion in terms of trying to wrap your head around it because we as humans just can't figure that out, right? And and one of the stats, and I'm I'm probably off on it, but I'll be corrected anyways. Like a million seconds is like 10 days or whatever, and a billion seconds is 32 years. So if we're talking of planting two billion trees, even if we planted a tree per second, that's 64 years. Right? That yeah. would never happen. Well, it's ridiculous. Uh it's uh I think over the course of 10 years. Uh, I think it was on Blacklocks, Holly Doan noted that 6 billion trees are planted by the uh, forestry industry in Canada over the course of a decade. Okay, yeah. But they have nurseries set up. You know, they're, yes, they're all planned, right? Yeah. They know where they're going to put them. They hire That's the crew. They've got the seedlings. They've got the seeds. They, yeah. Yeah. You know, um, so the federal government set up its tree planting program simply by talking with Greta Thunberg. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and said, yeah, okay, we'll plant, you know, billions of trees, sure. And then they found out, oh, wait a minute, you know, it actually takes a while to get the seeds 
and you got to build a nursery. And yeah. you, so now they're subcontracting people. Uh, and uh, we've got a whole bunch of videos on our website about the tree planting program. Yeah. You can usually see them very clearly because I'm standing there with a shovel and a tree. <laughs> um, anyway, so we have here Canada and Alberta are in the Oil Olympics. This mm. is our resilient recovery. So we're one of the top 10 oil producing nations in the world, also top 10 in gas. None of our competitor nations are imposing climate or energy policies that will restrict the production or sale of this valuable commodity on world markets. Clearly, the foreign and domestic funded tar sands campaign may be a green trade war against Canada and Alberta enacted under the umbrella of climate change. Yep. And Canada fared well during the 2008 recession, largely because the, the Alberta oil sands was churning 30 billion through our economy and driving about half a million jobs. So we've got a couple of reports there that detail more of that. Can we trust the consensus on climate science? No. Um, so uh, Roger PLK Jr., who is a professor at the University of Colorado, an author and uh, a climate policy analyst, uh, he and another fellow from uh, UBC, Justin Ritchie, have found that, that um, all the people who are making the catastrophic forecasts have been using an implausible scenario called RCP 8.5. And they reassessed the carbon output and everything. They found that it's conceivable, if not likely, that in 2019, the world has passed peak carbon dioxide emissions. Crucially, the projections in the figure above are pre-COVID-19, which means the actual emissions 2020 to 2045 will be even less than was projected in 2019. That's because nobody was going for anywhere for two years. Yeah, but, you know, their reductions from lockdown were nothing. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's cruel. It's really cruel to think. That uh, even, even being locked down and not being, well, I guess people are still ordering or, you know, skip the dishes or whatever. No, There's still stuff going on. But the human contribution is nominal, negligible. Yeah. And Mother Nature's contribution to CO2 concentration is huge. Yeah. So uh, we have a press release, I can send you that, where the calculation was done by Dr. Roy Spencer. Yeah. And he shows that, you know, it was nothing. I mean, if the climate activists use lockdown trying to prove their point, they failed miserably. And we should never, ever, ever lock down wow. for any reason, well, but certainly not for climate reasons. That's another good bit of tidbit of information for our viewers to, to take home and, uh, and good talking points. Wow. Yeah. Talking points over Christmas dinner. Hey, did you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll definitely send you that press release because yeah. that I don't have the numbers in the top of my head. And I don't want to misquote them because I'm slightly dyslexic. So <laughs> better that you have it in written yeah. form. Oops. So, and here it is, uh, you know, city of Calgary just came out with an $87 billion pathway to 2050 yeah. environment, Canada and Canada's banks. They all use these implausible scenarios. So you can see in this graph that RCP 8.5 and RCP six are implausible. It's just not going to happen. And they were not developed as as pathways for policy. They were developed simply for researchers to use. 
uh, to evaluate what is it that triggers um, um, the the uh, warming. Yeah. So um, RCP 8.5 entails having uh, 3 billion more people than the other ones, mm -hmm. which makes me concerned about talk of depopulation yeah. and also that we would be using more coal than exists on earth and without any climate policy. So, but, um, you know, these, these very important bodies are using these implausible scenarios for planning climate policy. And that's why it's so completely out of whack. And that's why we have to speak up and stop them. Yes. So, um, you know, I don't know if we can challenge B Bill C-12 anymore, but we should challenge the fundamental rationale for legislating emissions reductions requirement. As mm -hmm. you've seen, it's useless. We already have lots of laws. We measure, report, and reduce and tax GHGs. Um, and Robert Lyman wrote that really Bill C-12, what it means is that the proponents of such a law want to take the decisions on climate policy and measures out of the hands of the democratically elected governments and place them under the purview of the courts. So that's very interesting in relation to the Sovereignty Act. Mm -hmm. um, they want to give the environmental lobby groups and their foreign funders additional weapons to use against energy producers and users. They want the ability to challenge in court new projects of any kind. And in other words, inspired by their ideological commitment to place emissions reduction above all other public policy objectives, they want a way to impose a legal stranglehold on the Canadian economy. Wow. Now, in uh, 2017, Robert Lyman posed this question, can Canada survive climate change policy? At the time, he was optimistic, but actually now it seems unlikely. And one of the things he said was achieving the aspirational goal of 80% reduction recommended by the IPCC would mean reducing emissions to 147 megatons CO2 equivalent. That would be comparable to reducing Canada's per capita emissions and our energy economy to the current levels of Bolivia, Sudan, and Iraq which I will definitely assume is much, 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 much less than what we have now. Yes. And, and think of how people live. Yeah. I mean, Bolivia, basically, it's a subsistence society. Yeah. Sudan is a subsistence society. Iraq has a part that's um, modern technology, but it's really, you know, these are very difficult countries to live in. Yeah. So climate change policy is a threat to Canada. And uh, you all saw Robert Lyman a couple of weeks ago or a week ago. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to go on about him, but here are some short videos that you might want to yeah. watch. So for those who may have just joined us halfway through the, the previous APP webinar that we do on Wednesdays, uh, Robert Lyman was on here. And obviously we've, we've taken some, uh, some great information that he's, that he's already spewed out uh, uh, that uh, and with his graphs and, and, and everything else. And so if, if you want to know more, by all means, we will be posting these, these links, but likewise, if you haven't watched last week's interview with uh, Robert Lyman, please, please do. 
Yeah, these are very simple, plain language videos, but they give you the gist of what's going on as well. So, you know, if you don't have uh, the energy for a full dose yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So in summary, we do have time. There's no climate emergency. We do have time despite what Trudeau and his cronies tell us. Yeah, because we do have time. This is voluntary. And the Canadian Supreme Court only ruled on constitutionality, not climate science. Yeah. The climate emergency stems from the misuse of outdated science and these implausible scenarios. Attaining net zero by 2050 will destroy Canada and impoverish the people. Implementing Bill C-12 will strangle the Canadian economy with lawfare. Mm -hmm. And the federal climate plan, a healthy environment and a healthy economy, suffers from a lack of due diligence and cost-benefit analysis. And implementing it will submit Canadians to a cruel and unusual punishment in contravention of Section 12 of the Canadian Charter of Rights. Yeah. Wow. So I hope that people will read our reports and I hope you'll uh, donate and share our work and uh, we did these this two-part report called Penury or Prosperity, which responded to the um, uh, Task Force on Resilient Recovery, which was led by Gerald Butts. Uh, these are quite in-depth reports. The first part looks at geopolitical uh, comparisons, because they were saying, oh, you know, in Denmark, they're doing this. In France, they're doing that. In Germany, yeah. they're doing this. We should too. Well, all these countries are very different yes, they are. from Canada. Yeah. So we tried to break that down and show why some of the things they're doing there make perfect sense there. Like okay. in, in France, they have lots of nuclear power. So yeah, you can run everything on EVs. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Canada, not so much. Anyway, and the second one goes through in more detail of the uh, resilient recovery plans. Yeah. And this is us. So Friends of Science, we're an independent group of Earth, atmospheric, and solar scientists, engineers, and citizens. So you can join if you want. Uh, you can just go to our website. I can't, I, I can't believe I haven't joined yet. <laughs> yeah, anyone can join. Yeah, well, actually, I also have to sign up and join the Prosperity Project. Oh, yes. Oh, good. Yes. Yeah, well, initially, I didn't want to do that. I thought it might appear to be a conflict of interest, kind of me promoting, you know. Yeah. But I, I'm going to do that right after we finish. Awesome. I'm, I'm going to do the same. Okay. And uh, so we're celebrating our 20th year and we are asking people if they'd like to just send us 20 bucks just yeah. to celebrate our 20th awesome. year. Um, and, you know, we provide our material for free. We're a nonprofit. We're run by a volunteer board. Yeah. We operate on about $150,000 $150, a year yeah. from our member subscribers. And uh, we didn't monetize YouTube. Good thing yeah. we didn't because they would have taken us down. That's true. Yeah. So, um, you know, we do everything on a shoestring, but we have wonderful contributors like Robert Lyman, and we have our team of professional engineers and geoscientists, and we work very closely with the Clintel network as well. So we have access to high quality engineering and um, science information, and we share it with the public for free. Now, we need you to be our foot soldiers. We are not registered lobbyists. We don't have a, an office in Ottawa. We don't have that kind of budget. We don't have that number of people. Mm -hmm. So if there are things here that you see that you think are important, please get them to people who need to know about it. Yeah. And this is the actual science. You know, when, when people have been saying the last two years, you know, show us the science. Or, this is the science. This yeah. is it right here. 
go to friends <laughs> friends of science make a donation if you, it, and i shouldn't just say make a donation if you found this valuable or or even entertaining let's put it that way by all means please give what you can and uh because this type of stuff doing the research takes time takes effort you know and and even takes it takes gas i mean you got you got to drive around in order yep. to get stuff right so there's all yep. these things that uh, that require money and time and uh so yeah by all means uh please do that um thank you so much michelle um, my pleasure thank you absolutely amazing and I don't know whether I, I don't know whether I, I find it well. I do find it so interesting, but I don't know whether I, I need to punch a wall after I talk <laughs> to you because I get so irate as in yeah. how we're how we're basically being screwed over yet again by bureaucracy. Yeah, and, and you know we always try and tie what uh, what the discussion is is back to uh, Alberta Prosperity Project and. Again, we're looking at things from a global perspective and then a, a country perspective in terms of Canada. And then what what would Alberta do differently and, and how could we do things differently? Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of things I think would be easy to just say, well, you know what? We we live in a very energy profitable uh, province. So there's a lot of stuff that we could do on our own without the dealing with you know having to give our hard-earned money to canada and then have it go to cop and and basically take that money out of what we'd be able to actually do something with right mm -hmm. and and so i think you know whether or not you, you 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 think an independent alberta or at least independence within canada is is the answer i think the important thing is is that alberta has the ability to be that leadership and that we could actually make it make it worthwhile for the rest of Canada to look at and be leaders and say, you know what, um, you know, I'm from Manitoba originally. I've been out here since '96, so basically, I'm I'm definitely an Albertan by now. But I look at it and say, you know, Manitoba could look at it and say, you know what, we've got great hydroelectric power in uh, in Manitoba. You know what, we're going to stand on our own and we're going to do this as well. So I think these sorts of um, discussions are, are great in order to see you know how can we as albertans become prosperous and, right. and 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 that's the that's the important thing yeah right and because we are an energy rich and and uh, resource rich in every way province um you know our wealth spreads across canada like we have a video on our site called the tar sands campaign affects you canada yeah. Yeah. because people don't realize that um you know our prosperity there's a supply chain i mean we have things that are produced in ontario for the yeah. oil sands yeah. uh, you know we have people who come to work here from the maritimes we have um lots of contractors who are coming out of bc in uh you know the boom times uh, so you know it, it's really um a national project mm -hmm. and it's the invasion of these foreign funded environmental groups and their green trade war mm -hmm. and the fact that many of the graduates of those engos are now infiltrated into government but if people become more energy literate and if they understand the implications like robert lyman has laid out for us like i presented tonight once you start to understand the implications yeah. of some of these policies that look benign on the surface mm -hmm. 
you know, then people can stand up and say, no, you know, we're not going to do it that way. Yeah. We don't care what law you wrote. Mm -hmm. We don't have to comply with the Paris Agreement because it's purely voluntary. Absolutely. We don't destroy the country yeah. for, you know, a fake piece of paper that was signed uh, by a, a woman who didn't yeah. even know what a cop was. So even with that, so, you know, the other thing we usually end up with is, is saying, so we're down this road. How can we get off this road? Like, can we just go back and talk to our MPs or our MLAs and, and put pressure on them to say, you know what, this, everything you've been telling us so far has been this big horse hockey, right? <laughs> it's, we, we should be able to present these sorts of uh, webinars and, and the documentation to our uh, government representatives and say, you know, what you've been telling us is not the truth or maybe a half truth. Mm -hmm. And we need to have more discussions before we actually say, yeah, we're going to continue down this path because this path is looking pretty bleak. Right. And another thing, too, um, that I think is important, people may not know this, but there's a group of senators in the Canadian Senate. I think there's about 40 of them that have formed the climate senators. They even okay. have their own Twitter feed. And, yeah. you know, I mean, these guys are supposed to be the... Uh, the space of sober second thought yeah but now they already have a partisan climate group within that so you know again that's you know we're not registered lobbyists so we can't uh do much on that level but you know the public can do whatever they want in terms of phoning writing whatever yeah well again social media share 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 you know definitely mm -hmm. do that and and i guess i'll just wrap it up too because i mean i could easily talk for another hour and a bunch of topics <laughs> But uh, but we do these webinars every Wednesday. So we're actually taking a two-week break now because it is, is going to be Christmas. So we're starting up again in January 4th. So every Wednesday we do these, these types of win, uh, webinars and uh, always amazing people involved in, in, in interviewing and such a – my head explodes every time uh, I, we do these. And, um, and I think, you know, the – if – if, if people are, again, if they think it's worthwhile um, getting these, and if you're not part of the Alberta Prosperity Project already, please join. Join the membership. Uh, it's like $20 for a year and $30 for two years. I, I actually forget. I should know this off the top of my head, but I do know it's $20 for, for one year. And uh, it's just albertaprosperityproject.com. And most people that are probably on here are at least aware of that. But I'm really just saying that for if you do share this and get it out to someone else, they may go, oh, well, that's interesting. And how do I get more involved? And that's definitely how you get involved. There's chapters set up all over Alberta. There's like a ridiculous number. I want to say like 150. There's probably even more than that now. Chapters uh, across Alberta. Uh, get involved. And again, this is the educational arm of, uh, uh, you know, people say, well, do I vote for somebody in APP? No, this is the educational arm. We're, we're basically doing these uh, this education so that whoever becomes into political power can take these ideas and use them as best as their ability, right? So mm -hmm. and I know people have talked about, you know, our, our current premier, uh, Daniel Smith, and, uh, and how she's been able to do the Sovereignty Act. And, and that's great. I mean, that's, that's kind of the whole point behind the APP is to give some sort of independence either within or uh, external to, to Canada. 
And uh, so again, if you're if people are interested, please get involved uh, either a membership or even get in. If you can't afford the membership, that's totally understandable too. But maybe get out to a meeting. And and I really say when there when we do these sorts of meetings, it's great to watch them online. But there's also the pre-show, if you want to call it that, and the after-show, and that's where you get to talk to people that are uh, that that have the same interests as you. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, you know, I always seem seem to say like-minded, but I mean, it, it's more than that. It's people that um, are are really interested in what's happening in, in politics and what's happening in terms of uh, the environment and in terms of uh, uh, the economy and and anything like that. And uh, so it, it's important to get involved that way. So, so I think with that, Great. that is all. But uh, again, thank you so much, Michelle and uh, friends of science. I'm going to go and sign up right away. And uh, with that, we will see you in a couple of weeks uh, when we're back again from our Christmas break on uh, January 4th. So until then, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy, New Year. Happy New Year. There you go. Happy Hanukkah. Okay. <laughs> And all the other denominations, thank you. Thanks (laughs) again. All right, good night. Hey, good night. Thank you.